You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Well, from 1996 to 2010... Australia endured our worst drought on record. Let me tell you what happened. In 1997, an El Nino effect brought dry conditions that swept across southeastern Australia. And over the next decade, the drought only worsened. Uh, By 2006, rainfall levels in our city were up to 90% below average. And by 2009, our water supplies we're at just 27% of total capacity. Now, some of you here might even remember the water restrictions that we had in place in many households across our city. But the truth is, the worst effects of the drought were felt right across the country. 60% of farms in the Murray-Goulburn Basin went out of business. Water had become so expensive that some farmers even had to kill their animals because they couldn't afford to keep them alive. But the drought was even more devastating than that. You see, during those 16 years, believe it or not, the number of 30 to 49-year-old men committing suicide increased by 15%. Even today, uh, men in rural Australia are twice as likely as city men to kill themselves, all because of the drought, sometimes out of desperation to simply secure a life insurance payout for their own families. You see, living in the city, we might not really feel it. But drought has a devastating impact on a nation. It starts by starving the livestock. And it ends by starving the people. It's no wonder then the Australian poet Dorothy McKellar writes, Core of my heart, my country, her pitiless blue sky. When sick at heart around us, we see the cattle die. But then the grey clouds gather and we can bless again the drumming of the army, the steady soaking rain. Friends, in 1 Samuel, Israel is facing a drought, but it's a drought not of rain, It's a drought of God's words. And the impact of this drought is so much more devastating, not only for Israel's physical existence, but also for Israel's eternal fate. You see, God's people are suffering a drought, and what they need more than anything else is the steady, soaking rain of the Word of God. You know, one sentence can contain a world of meaning, can't it? Well, just look at chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, the word of God was rare and prophetic visions were not widespread. You see, in that one sentence, it's that moment that your doctor tells you you're terminally ill and you don't have long to live. Because God's words bring life. God's words sustain life. They are to our souls what air is to our lungs. 
but you don't have those words. Deuteronomy 8 says that man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see, friends, God's word nourishes our souls as food nourishes our bodies. Just as our lives depend on the sustenance of food, our hearts depend on the sustenance of the word. Some people uh, ask me from time to time, Adam, how long can I go without reading my Bible? And I ask, well, how long can you live without food or water? Do not expect to live any longer than that without God's words. You see, the prophet Isaiah describes God's words as rain that, that falls from heaven, saturates the earth, makes it germinate and sprout, and provides seed to sow and food to eat. God's word brings life to a people like rain brings life to the earth. But for Israel, the rain has stopped falling. The tap has turned off. The water has run dry. You see, friends, the drought of the word means death for a nation. There can be no greater judgment than the silence of God. Just think back to the beginning of chapter 1. In Hannah, we met a helpless woman, unable to bear a child. Well, without a child, she faced a future without hope and without life. Her childlessness represents her helplessness. But here, Israel's wordlessness represents its helplessness. Without God's word, it faces a future without hope and without life. You see, in Israel, we meet a helpless nation unable to hear God's words. And in verse 2 we catch a glimpse as to why. Eli and the priests of Israel. You see, we often think that it's the job of the priests just to intercede for the people, but no, they also have the task to speak for the Lord. But, but if Eli and his sons are exploiting the people and disrespecting the Lord, then how in the world can we expect to hear God's voice? In verses 1 and 2, we see there, right there, revelation language. Do you see it? Vision. Eyesight. And the lamp of God. And we begin to wonder, is this speaking just as much about God's words as it is about Eli's life? Can you see? Israel's eyesight is failing. Just like the vision of Israel. And the lamp of God, it hasn't gone out just yet, but it is dim. And its light is fading, just like the Word of God. A, a dam is supposed to not just hold back water. A dam is supposed to provide water for the sustenance and life of the people. But, but in Eli and his sons, all that we have here is a dam that is holding back God's words and starving God's people. There is, though, a drop of hope. There is a drop of hope. 
And just like last week, it's found in an unlikely place. Samuel. Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was located. You see, this young boy, Hannah's miracle child, he's growing up. And he's lying of all places next to the ark of God. And I wonder if you can guess what lies within that ark. That's right. The tablets of the testimony, the word of God. Friends, can you see the contrast here between Eli and Samuel? Eli is the elder priest from the right tribe and he is lying, it says, in his usual place. Now, we don't know exactly where that is, but wherever it is, it seems to be not where Samuel is lying. Presumably, it's not near God's word. But Samuel is the young priest from the wrong tribe and yet look at where he's lying. Near the word of the Lord. You see, if the drought of God's word is caused by the sin of Eli and his sons, there is a trickle of hope in the young boy, Samuel. Well, if a sentence can contain a world of meaning, friends, three words can change the course of history. And we find those three words right there in verse 4. The Lord called. The Lord called. You see, I know, they're just three simple words, but you know what? In a devastating drought, where the land is cracked by the sun, these are the first three drops of rain. It's that moment on a scorching day when you feel the rain start to fall. You see, these three words are a trickle of life in a drought-stricken land. But of all people, God calls not Eli the elder priest from the right tribe, but Samuel the unlikely priest from the wrong tribe. And we can't help but hear Hannah sing, can we? The Lord brings poverty and gives wealth. He humbles and he exalts. Time and time again we've seen, Yahweh is the God of reversals who will bring down the proud and lift up the humble who will judge the wicked and save the weak, who will reject Eli and exalt Samuel. In both Hannah and her son, God shows himself to be full of grace. In verses 4 to 10, I love this scene. The Lord calls Samuel three times, and each time Samuel thinks that it's Eli who is calling him. Each time he runs to Eli and says, here I am. But each time Eli responds, I didn't call, go back and lie down. And and we might wonder, why does Samuel not recognize God's voice? Why does he think that it is Eli who is calling him? Because in verse 7, Samuel did not yet know the Lord, because the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Friends, over the last two chapters, Samuel has been growing in the presence of the Lord. But he still does not know God personally. God has not yet revealed himself to Samuel, and when he does, he will reveal himself through his word. And in this moment, that is exactly what God is doing. If you're not a Christian and you're checking Christianity out, you want to find out more about Jesus, you might wonder to yourself, well, how exactly can I know God? 
If God is supposed to be that infinite, that transcendent, how in the world can little old me discover a God as big as him? And friends, this shows us, doesn't it, that knowing God is not a matter of personal discovery. It's a matter of divine revelation. We do not discover God somehow through our own knowledge. No, God reveals himself to us through his words. If you want to know this God, if you want to hear his voice, you need two things to happen. Number one, God must speak. And number two, obviously, we must listen. And we must listen just like Samuel with a posture of humility. Just remember back to chapter 2, verse 25. Eli's sons would not listen to their father, but here, not once or twice, but three times, Samuel says to Eli, Here I am. And as he responds to God's words, look at what he says. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Samuel, he, he adopts his mother's posture towards God, a posture of humility and faith. What an example for us as we approach the Word of God. You see, the first step to hearing God speak, believe it or not, is not to look down at your Bible, but to look up at your God. To pray in humility that the Spirit might open the eyes of our heart. In Hannah's humility, God opened the floodgates of his blessings. And in Samuel's humility, God is opening the floodgates of his word. And the trickle now becomes a stream. Well, God's words are now flowing in far greater measure, but the words that follow now in these verses taste terribly bitter. But just like medicine that we drink to restore our health, what starts as bitter ends as sweet. Just look at verses 11 to 18. God speaks at length, but he speaks a bitter word of judgment. He begins by confirming his previous word. I will carry out against Eli everything I said about his family from beginning to end. The proud priestly family of Eli will come to a bitter end. And I know some of you last week were wondering, look, Adam, what exactly wrong did Eli do? What exactly was his sin? Well, here God confirms it. His sons are cursing God, and he has not stopped them. Eli, he has been willfully blind, criminally negligent to the sins of his sons. And what a warning for us. A warning against turning a blind eye to sin in our own households. We must beware not only the sins we commit, but also the sins we permit. And for that reason, God's judgment against Eli's household will be irreversible. The iniquity of Eli's family will never be wiped out by either sacrifice or offering. Just, just... Feel the gravity of that judgment for a moment. Just imagine if God spoke those words to you. 
Imagine if your sin was so great that no sacrifice could atone for it. Imagine if your soul was so stained that nothing could wash it clean. Imagine if there was no redemption, no forgiveness, no salvation, no reconciliation. What a terrible destiny. And yet that is what awaits Eli's household. And once again we hear Hannah sing. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder in the heavens against them. And that's exactly what God does. He speaks a word of judgment. Well, our scene progresses. It's the next day. Samuel wakes up. Eli calls him. What was the message God gave to you? Now, now put yourself in Samuel's shoes for just one moment. Last night, God appeared to you, told you that he'd judge your master and his family forever. Now your master is asking you, oh, tell me what he said. It's a bit awkward, isn't it? Well, wouldn't you feel the pressure to hide God's words, to silence God's voice, to run dead on what God has said? Wouldn't it be so tempting to just leave out that little bit about judgment? But that's been the whole problem, hasn't it? Eli's sons have not fulfilled their prophetic duties. They have not spoken the words of the Lord. This whole time, the whole problem has been that they have been depriving the nation of the life-giving words of God. So Samuel does what Eli and his sons have failed to do. Verse 18, he tells him everything. And he does not hide anything from him. Verse 20 sums it up. Samuel is a confirmed prophet of the Lord. He becomes the prophet whom Eli and his sons could never be. The prophet through whom God's words will once again sound in Israel. Friends, can you see what God is doing? God is bringing down Eli who silenced his words. And he is raising up Samuel to speak his words. We've just passed 20 years since 9-11 happened. 20 years since Al-Qaeda terrorists hijacked four planes with the intention of taking down three pillars of American power. The World Trade Center as the center of their economy. The Pentagon as the mighty arm of their military. And the Capitol building as the seat of their government. Now, thank God, that final attack was thwarted. But if the Capitol building was hit, can you imagine all three arms of American power would have been crippled? Well, in 1 Samuel 1 to 3, over these three chapters we've seen, haven't we? Israel is a crippled nation and every pillar of power has been compromised. But unlike America, Israel is not brought down by an attack from without. No, it is brought down by sin from within. All three powers, all three pillars of power are fatally compromised. Israel has no king, so everyone does what seems right to them. Israel has no priest, so sin is rampant among the people. And Israel has no prophet, so God's word is not heard. You see, Israel's three pillars of power are fatally compromised. There is no prophet, there is no priest, and there is no king. 
And yet over these three chapters, can you see how God has been at work? God is giving strength to his anointed king. God is raising up a faithful priest. And God is confirming his truthful prophet. That the stream of God's word, which began with bitter judgment, ends with sweet restoration. It, it removes Eli's and his sons, and it confirms Samuel as the one through whom God's word will sound again. It's as if God is removing a blockage in the dam and installing an open gate through which his word will flood the nation. And so in verse 19, God fulfills everything Samuel prophesies. Literally, he lets none of his words fall to the ground. Did you know what that means? It means that Samuel's words are God's words. For only God's words are perfect and powerful. You see, through this one prophet, God is pouring out a flood of his word from Dan to Beersheba, from the northernmost tip to the southernmost point of all Israel. The word of God is flooding the land as if to wash away the sins of its people and to bring new life to the nation. It's that moment from the two towers where the ends tear down Saruman's dam. The water of the river Eisen breaks forth. It floods the bowl of Isengard. It sweeps away the weapons of war and restores the land to its former glory. You see, friends, Hannah praised God for reversing her fortunes, for turning her childlessness into fruitfulness, her weakness into strength. And in this chapter, we hear her voice resound as God reverses the fortunes of Israel, as he turns silence into speech and a drought into a flood. And just like Hannah, Israel now has a future full of hope, full of life, because now they can hear God's words. Friends, what might this mean for us today? Well, firstly, let me make this observation. The wrong way, the wrong way to apply this passage is to ask this question. Are you going through a season of spiritual drought in your life? That is the wrong question to ask. No, to ask that question is to forget that what we read here is written in a particular time and at a particular place. And more seriously, it forgets the Lord Jesus. You see, Hebrews 1 tells us, long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. You see, friends, we do not live in Samuel's day where God might not speak. No, we live in Jesus' day where God has already spoken. And he has spoken in Jesus. Let me put it this way. It is, in one sense, simply not possible for you and me to experience a drought of God's word in the same way that Israel did. Well, let me tell you the best news you'll hear today. The drought has been broken and the word has flooded the earth. In Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, if you're not a Christian, that might just catch you by surprise. 
Because why would God speak to our world through an insignificant Jewish man who was executed by the Roman Empire? I mean, if God is so great a king, why not speak from the heights of heaven? Why not thunder from a glorious throne? Why not make it obvious? But friends, don't forget, God chose to speak not through Eli, but through Samuel. He chose a humble boy to be the truthful prophet through whom he would pour out his word. So now... It's no surprise, is it, that that God comes in lowliness to speak to the lowly. It's no surprise that God comes in humility to speak to the humble. It's no surprise that God comes in weakness to speak to the weak. It's no surprise that God comes as one of us to speak to the least of us. You see, friends, God has revealed himself in his word. And that word is Jesus. So you might think that if there is a God, he must be too lofty for us to know anything about him. You might assume that it's impossible for us to really claim any real knowledge about this God. But the drought has broken. God's word is flooding the earth. To adapt the words of Francis Francis Schaeffer, God is there. And he is not silent. You see, if you want to know this God, you can. Just listen to Jesus. Because there is nothing you need to know about God that you cannot find in him. Secondly, hear the word of salvation. Let me ask, in your Bibles, can you just flick there to verse 14? The iniquity of Eli's family will never be wiped out by the sacrifice or offering. What do you feel? What do you feel when you read those words? You might read those words and think to yourself, well, God's words must only be words of judgment. I mean, it sounds like God would never forgive my sin. And I'm convinced, I've come to realize that sadly, many of us open God's words almost expecting them to be words only of judgment. We open our Bibles expecting to read words that sting, but do not sing. Words that condemn, but do not console. Words that lash, but do not love. But yet again, We do not live in Samuel's day. You see, Eli's sin was against the Lord. And remember, if a person sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? No, friends, for us, the failed prophet Eli has been replaced not only by Samuel. He's been replaced by the Lord Jesus, who came to be that sacrifice and offering. Jesus alone is the sacrifice perfect enough to wipe out our sins. And because Jesus is that perfect sacrifice who died in our place, God will wipe out our iniquity if we trust in him. You see, we need not hear words of judgment anymore. Jesus guarantees that unlike Eli, we will hear words 
of salvation. Words of forgiveness. Words of grace. Words of mercy. And words of love. God said of Eli's family that their sins will never be wiped out by either sacrifice or offering. But God says of us that our sins have been forgiven. They have been wiped out. They have been atoned for forever. You see, because of Jesus, we need not hear words of judgment. And we need not fear words of judgment. The drought has been broken. And the gospel, as God's words of salvation, sound throughout the world. Eli did not have a sacrifice perfect enough to wipe away his sin. We do. We do. We have the Lord Jesus. Finally, can I encourage you, brothers and sisters, soak, soak in God's word. You know, it may not be possible for us to ever really enter a drought of God's word again, but it doesn't stop many of us from, in one sense, imposing a drought on ourselves. It doesn't stop us from depriving ourselves of God's word. I think it's such a shame that so many of us think that the Bible is dry and arid. We think that these words steal our joy and diminish our life. Well, in fact, no, these words, no, they increase our joy and they give us life to the full. Well, how much more a shame is it if we neglect God's word when it is flooding our world? We're like men and women who are dying of thirst and yet refuse to drink from the fountain of water. And instead, what do we do? We foolishly look to find joy and life, not in the word, but in the world. Instead of drinking from the fountain of clear water to quench our thirst, no, we run and drink from the ocean of salt water that only makes it worse. Prince, God's word is not dry or arid. Can I tell you, it is full of joy and life. Soak yourself in the word of God. Immerse yourself in its truth. Drink deeply of this book. Swim in the ocean of God's Word. For the deeper you drink of this Word, the more you will find joy and life. Well, what might it look like, even this week, even tonight, for us to soak in the Word? Let me give you two tips for how we might soak in the Word this week. Firstly, look up. Look up. If knowing God is not a matter of discovery but revelation, if knowing God takes God to reveal himself to us, then surely we must approach him with humility. We must approach him as Samuel does in a posture of humility. It's so easy for us, isn't it? Sometimes to say, you know, my Bible reading isn't going well but my prayer life is great. Well, my prayer life is great, but my Bible reading could be doing better. But friends, can you see here that actually the word and prayer go together? 
If we are to engage deeply and drink deeply of the Word, we must look up and pray to our God in the words of Samuel, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Look up. Secondly, slow down. Slow down. You see, if I splash a bucket of water onto a plant in dry soil, it will make an almighty mess, won't it? No, what do I need to do? I need to slowly drip feed that water onto that plant so that it seeps down deep into the soil and all the way to its roots. Slow down your reading. Soak yourself in the Word. And let the Word seep into the soil of your heart. Look up. Slow down. Friends, in Jesus, the drought has been broken. And the gospel, as God's word of salvation, is flooding the earth. And one day, as the prophet Habakkuk foresaw, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God's glory as the water covers the sea. Gosh, how we long for that day when the drought which became a trickle, which grew into a stream and which burst through as a flood becomes an ocean of God's word that reaches people from every tribe. Let me pray. Almighty God, we long for your word. Almighty God, we need your word. Almighty God, we thirst for your word. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen.